I'm Holly Wayment, and this is Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy pediatric practitioner. Click on the link in this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on our topic or podcast. I want to thank you so much for listening, and today I'm thrilled to have Dr. Alice Gong here with me in the podcast studio and back on the show. Thanks for being here, Dr. Gong. Thank you for inviting me. So, Dr. Gong, you are president of the Texas Pediatrics Society. You've been practicing neonatology for 40 years, and you're an expert in early relational health. I am very interested in it, just passionate about what we can do so early in life. And if we are able to establish a relationship for the baby with mostly the mother, but with, you know, a compassionate, caring adult, that baby's going to be so much better off as a young person. And we hope this is one good way to prevent some of the mental health issues that we're seeing so much of. It is such an epidemic. You're passionate about interrelational health and that early relational health. You also have another important role. Oh, well, I've just become the co-chair for the Texas Collaborative for Healthy Mothers and Babies. And this is a group that is actually part of UT Houston School of Public Health uh, and, uh, you know, with support from the Department of State Health Services to improve the health of mothers and babies in the state of Texas. And they're looking at it quite extensively, looking at problems, trying to solve some of the maternal death problems and uh, some of the newborn problems that we see. Just as in this, ahead of the game, they are going to work on a plan to confront some of the, the epidemic of the congenital syphilis that we're seeing. I heard about that. Yes, quite. Mm. Yeah. So, Alice, you're a mother, a grandmother, a wife, medical professional with a ton of experience. Our pediatric pr- practitioner listeners, they're dealing with this psychiatry epidemic. And of course, as we all know, there's not enough psychiatric practitioners to be able to see the patients, ones who can get in. It can often be really expensive, too expensive. So what can be done from a familial relationship perspective? What's your number one piece of advice? Well, you know, pregnancy and birth just changes people, you know. I, as a mother that was on a professional career, I didn't realize how much it would change me when you see that little baby for the first time. After carrying the baby during the pregnancy, you could feel that you're changing. You know, there are a lot of hormones to help with that. And so when the baby's born and you get the baby and you're holding the baby and you're loving on your baby and you're going, wow, this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen. And you're counting fingers and toes and baby opens his eyes or her eyes to look at you and you just melt. You know, it's kind of like, oh my gosh, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. You smile and the baby looks at you and talks with his or her eyes at you and you make that connection and you know 
Biologically, we're set up to do that because pregnancy helps us with all these good hormones that help us regulate that loving, you know, so that oxytocin, that feeling, so that you become connected with your baby. And, uh, you know, if you follow kind of what nature intended in your breastfeeding, you're looking at your baby all the time when you're feeding and the baby's looking back at you. And there's a lot of communication even before verbal communication. And because that relationship is, you have that relationship, you can read your baby's cues because baby does, can't tell you I'm hungry or I'm thirsty or I'm, you know, or, you know, my diaper's wet or I want to be hugged. They can only complain if you don't do what they want. And which is kind of, you know, a lot of parents say they won't lay down. And I said, well, you know, because they want to be with you, you know. And we as a society, have gotten away from that. Our mothers work, they have a lot of responsibilities, and that is not a bad thing, but you just need to kind of work around it. I think that if we could follow all the developed countries in the world and have paid maternity leave, a policy that allows mothers to have those first months with their babies where they get to know their babies so that they develop this unspoken language that but there is a lot of conversation actually going on between mom and child. And that gives that child a good relationship that somebody can count on, you know. They can count on that if they're upset, their mother or their caregiver will respond and will will take care of what they need. And they don't have language, but they can cry and they can make a big noise, you know, to let you know. But if you don't respond to them and they fuss enough and nobody responds, then what they'll do is go into the more primitive part of their autonomic nervous system, which is that withdrawal. And that is not a good thing because your autonomic nervous system regulates all the things that you have to do without thinking about it. Breathing, you know, getting your blood pressure right, breathing and getting your heart rate right, understand, you know, having your body being able to regulate a lot of things that we don't consciously think about. That autonomic nervous system has to be mature so we can do that. If you don't and you go into the more primitive autonomic nervous system, then you can't do those things. You, you, you're not able to regulate your heart rate and you're not regulate your breathing. You're not able to regulate your, the, the, all the wonderful physiologic things that we as humans are endowed with without having to think about it. And when you're not balanced and you're not regulated, then that child tends to have lots of other issues. The inability to speak, so language issues, developmental delay, being isolated. And isolation is the worst thing because loneliness is our major epidemic now. Uh, when you are isolated and you can't connect with people, you don't know how to have a relationship. And without that relationship, someone to stabilize you, you end up with a lot more mental health problems. And yet a lot of parents give timeouts. It's very common to... Well, timeouts can be of value as long as it's understood what it's for. And so... Before you go to the timeout stage, learn to read your child and learn to read what your child, when your child gets frustrated and try to intervene 
before the point of severe frustration after crying, banging your head and so forth. If you can intervene ahead of time and, you know, and, you know, do something like calm your baby, pick your baby up and, and, and hold them and love on them, uh, divert them from, say, what you think they, they want that you don't think they should have. Say if your child is going to run out in the street and you pick them up and they scream at you because they want to run out in the street and you, you know, you can, you know, calm them. Sometimes it's hard to calm. Sometimes some children do need a little time away just to calm. And that could be your time out. You could say, well, you know, you shouldn't have done that. Let's go do time out. And you can give them a short time out. And then when they are calm and able to listen, say, explain to them why it is important that they as a little person should not be running out in the street because a big old car may hit them. And then they would be very damaged and you would be very upset. I think to tell your feelings to your children is important because they need to understand that. They have all these feelings. They just can't put words to it. But if you give them the words and say, you know, that makes me very scared that you would want to run out in the street. And and that's not good for me either, you know. So, you know, when you would come to a street, the best thing you can do is hold my hand. And if you want to cross the street, make sure I can see that it's safe for you to cross. And then we cross together. You know, making it a relationship togetherness, not, I, you know, just it's my way or the highway or that the child is always in the wrong. You know, children have need to explore. And you as the parent need to make sure they explore safely. Because you want that child to grow up and take care of you. <laughs> That's a great point. <laughs> and as we know, in, in Texas, corporal punishment is legal and there are people who spank their kids and do you want to say, I mean, say anything about that i mean is that is that helpful in any way does that help the child does that help the relationship i can't imagine that it helps right because all the child is going to feel is the pain of the hit Eventually, children get used to that pain, and if that's the only way to get relationship, they they will continue to aggravate you, which mm. is not what you want, you know. Rather than hitting, think of some other ways that you can approach the situation. All of this requires thought, and a lot of us, because we grew up in generations where that's what parents do. If you did something wrong, they hit you, you know. But did that accomplish anything? Uh, and was that the, you know, I think if my if parent says, you know, I really don't like that. That makes me hurt. That hurts me. That is just as effective as hitting them because that emotional thought of that you hurt someone is ingrained in us that we, you know, if you have a good relationship, you don't want to hurt the person you love. And even you may not understand that you hurt them. But if you spank a child, you've turned a situation where you felt hurt into a painful experience for the child. Uh, is that going to keep the child from doing the same thing again? Some children might, but not all. Some children will just do as much as they can to, to get your attention. And if the attention is only with, uh, with pain, that is not good for that child to feel that the only way they can get what they crave is through pain, which leads to mental health issues. Mm. And 
no parent wants that, of course. No. They just may not realize it. Mm -hmm. And I remember you telling me that really all that does is it makes the child feel bad. Mm -hmm. It's not really teaching a lesson, except except for maybe someone who they love and trust might hurt them. Mm -hmm. Yes, that is correct. And, you know, you're not going to go through life without hurting your child or your child hurting you, but it is the coming back together, the calming that you can come back together and resolve the issues. I mean, we all need to learn how to resolve issues. And I think that's part of what's happening. You know, we don't know how to resolve situations. We only want to get what we want. You know, if we're going to build a better future, we need to teach our children that, no, you don't always get what you want, but we could talk about it. We can talk about why you want what you want. And you can hear what I have to say about why I don't feel like you should have what you want. And and have that shared decision. You know, it's not necessarily a completely shared decision because as the parent, you kind of get to, with your time and wisdom, you get to overrule some things. And it's enlightening sometimes to hear what children want, you know, uh, rather than just saying no. You know, it may be a possibility. It may be, you know, is it wrong if somebody wants to have dance lessons instead of playing baseball? Is it wrong if somebody prefers to draw and paint rather than to run around? I don't think so. I think that we should celebrate our differences and understand that you may be creating an amazingly individual. That's that's great advice. I've had the opportunity, as you know, to work with the Nurture Science Program at Columbia, and I know you're highly involved there. And what Nurture Science did was give us the science of understanding about relationships. What we un- what we learn is that that developing of that autonomic nervous system is very important, and it happens in utero with the baby connected to the mom. But if babies are born early, they miss out on that opportunity, so their autonomic nervous system is not regulated. So if you go into NICU, you see a lot of babies who don't breathe regularly, whose heart rates are real high, whose blood pressures are high and low all the time. It's because they're not regulated. If you bring the mother in and the baby hears that voice that that baby's been used to when he or she was inside the womb, smell that smell, that's the mom. And mom smelling baby and looking in the eye and making those communications, those babies become regulated much better. And the science, what they show was that the brain development was way ahead of babies who didn't get that intervention, where we helped the mothers develop that emotional connection with their baby. Those babies that have that emotional connection, they carry it. So in our follow-up program, we were able to see these kids as they grow and they have this connection. You know they have it because moms know how to read them and they know how to read their moms and they have a really good relationship. So that's what we want for everybody. And it's very tough when you have a premature baby. It is not what you wanted when you went into your pregnancy, you know. Mothers frequently feel guilty that they have a premature baby. And we always say, don't feel guilty, but we can't stop them from thinking things, which some mothers have told me. I should have been able to protect my baby. 
That's what I'm supposed mm-hmm. to do. But I couldn't. And I, my baby had to come out and had to go to this place where there were wires and tubes and all these things connected. And I couldn't mother my baby. I want to mother my baby, but I don't know how. And I don't want to get in the way of the medical team that's taking care of my baby because I want my baby to live and I want my baby to come home. So I'll just get out of the way. And so you don't develop that relationship, and it actually does impact the brain development. Because in the studies of the babies looking at their brainwave activity through a very sophisticated electro EEG using like 128 leads, we know that those babies' brainwaves are very immature, even at term. But the babies that got the intervention had are much more mature. And when you compare their brainwave activity to term babies, they're equal. Whereas the population that did not get the intervention, that did not have the uh, relationship with the parents, they have much more immature brainwaves. So their brain is not maturing the same way as they would if they had stayed inside the womb. So this intervention works. Uh, and we have the science to prove it. But as you know, it's hard for science to become mainstream, to become part of the care. And that's something we're working on right now to do that. So th- there's been some issues of trying to do this program lots of different people with different ideas and so forth. But the concept is what we should, you know, take. On And we're working on how to create programs that can get that concept out, that training out, that understanding of what is needed to help the baby to mature the brain more rapidly than what we had done before. So educational videos and things that can be used in other NICUs would be very helpful. And I do have to give a shout out to the Episcopal Health Foundation who helped us fund something like that. It sounds amazing. So the NICU at the New Women's and Children's Hospital is harnessing this power of the healing power of nurture science, right? And if the mom would stay and she has the room, she has the space, she has everything she needs to stay. But, you know, it's hard. You know, if you live far away, if you have a job, if you have other children, other responsibilities, it's hard to be there as much as possible. But in the nurture science studies, we found that if they would have at least one hour of contact four times a week, we could we could make a difference. So it's not like, I mean, it's great if you could be there every day and, you know, because if you do, then you are more attuned to your baby, understanding when your baby needs to be fed, when your baby needs to be held, and so forth. Whereas if you're not there but infrequently, you don't develop that relationship that closely. And I've I've applied to be a volunteer, a baby holder in the NICU. Yay! So I have an interview coming up. <laughs> Excited about that. I'll put a plug in for you. Okay. That would be wonderful. I... How can we all, you know, what else should we be saying to patients, the community, pediatric practitioner, listener, to help lay the groundwork to prevent mental issues down the road or even to help anything that might be developing? What would you say there? Well, there's some formal training programs in Texas Pediatric Society 
but they offer the training to local pediatricians. And we have a few in San Antonio that signed up to do the training. The training teaches you to look at that relationship by cues. You know, it is not about that good-looking mother that seems so perfect, but the child that won't look her in the eye. And it's not about that cute baby that will like engage you but can't engage the mother. You really want them to be together and and engage each other. And that's what you're looking for. You're looking for that space between the mother and child when they come to your appointments. And if you don't see that, then you can help make, you know, reveal that problem to the mother and and help them to try to get together and and maintain, you know, try to develop that relationship. Dr. Welch from Columbia developed this Welch emotional connection tool, which you can use to kind of look at that because you look at, you know, the parent and the child attracted to each other. They have to be attracted to each other, not just the mom to herself or the baby to, you know, but to each other. And, and when, when they have, do they reciprocate each other? So a mom that's upset, the baby will frequently put their hands on her face just so they can, you know, say, I, I empathize with you. And so that's all about sharing all the emotions, not just the happy one, which culture has taught us, yeah, you should do that and you should hide everything else from your baby. Like well, happy that, is only the the only okay emotion, right? <laughs> well, but the baby inside the womb would have experienced all of mom's emotions. She's frustrated because someone cut her off. You know, she's mad because something she's working on didn't work out. She's sad because she may have lost a friend or, you know, all these emotions we have. But expressing them to our babies is something we guard against because we were told you need to make the baby happy. But babies actually need all of that because otherwise they don't understand how to handle those relationships or those emotions. And the best way for your baby to grow up as an adult, to know how to handle different emotional issues is if you share that from the get-go. And I know it's not easy. You know, I come from a culture where you hide everything. And so it's taken me a long time to understand this this process. But it is very important to do. And as cultures, as, as we grow in society and we learn more and we have more science, then we should learn how to do things differently. Uh, communication uh, is important, and uh, is communication with your baby is important. And a lot of people go, well, I can't communicate with my baby. He can't talk to me. Yes, your baby can talk to you. You just have to be aware of all those facial expressions and all the things that they do, all the hand things where if they're like pushing you away, that's something that's not good. They don't want whatever you're doing. And you may say, well, I know it's best for my baby, so I'm going to do that. But if the baby's telling you no, maybe you should think about, maybe I'm not doing it the way it needed to be done for this baby. And we could put a link to that Welch Emotional Connection Calculator in the podcast or the WEX. The WEX. It, yeah. it, it, it does take some training to understand it, but I think, I mean, it is a score that you give, like, is the mother. And you don't give them a, a good score unless 
both are doing the same thing. So we can do that, but it's not easy to pick it up. I thought I could do that when I first did this, but I, you know, it takes some time to understand what it is that's going on. And, you know, there's a great program out of the Seattle area about early relational health. And it's all the same, you know, it is about getting that relationship. And we'll put links in about the training and that Okay. That as well. And I, when I was working and helping out with the nurture science program, I had, I didn't really brought home the message about how important showing the range of emotions and sharing that with your child. With my first child, I felt like if I, if I had to cry or if I was mad, I had to go in another room and hide it. And I did. And I know that's, I think that's what I love you, mom, but I think that's what my mom did too. So we, like you were saying, you learn, Mm -hmm. you know, and my mom's an amazing mom, but I rarely saw her cry or get upset. And maybe that's part of a protective thing parents do too. I don't know. I know, but when the one time you see your parent upset when you're not used to it, it is very startling and it's very hard. And most, well, I, I as a child internalize it that I did something terrible to my mom. Mm. And instead of that, there was a situation she was upset about and that, and because she never told me why, she just got very, very mad. And I thought it was me. Of course, there were five of us and we all thought it was Mm -hmm. each other. So I remember feeling that way too. Yeah. And there was five of us as well. (laughs) It's like the mom had a lot on her plate, understandably. Yes. Yes. Another big hot topic right now is social media and the addiction to screens and and how that is hurting. We know it's bad for kids and it's hard though to control that and do you have any advice there? I mean, well, the American Academy of Pediatrics with good evidence recommends no screen time before age 2 except when you're FaceTiming your grandparents. <laughs> yes, that's because great. when I FaceTime with my grandchildren, I react, they react. They can see, we can see each other like if they look at me and smile, I smile right back, you know, and I I coo and I call, you know, do all kinds of stuff and and we 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 talk to each other even when they were little babies. Babies are set up to develop their skills by looking at what happens when, um, and and so they, and a lot of times they mirror and then they look to see what the reaction is. So you smile at your baby, the baby smiles back and then you go, wow, and you smile bigger and the baby smiles bigger and you coo and you do all these things. A television screen doesn't change except according to what the program is. So there, if the baby not knowing looks at it and tries to engage it and it doesn't engage back, there's some pretty negative feedback from that. And so um, there are findings of kids who were exposed to a lot of screen time having more problems with ADHD and autism and relational problems and behavior problems. Nobody wants that for their child. So just turn off the TV, turn off the the phone and um, give your baby a good, healthy start. The brain has so much growth in those first three years. There are all kinds of connections that are being made that inform the brain that the brain can do these things. And there are connections that are cut off because it's not necessary. 
And so if your baby's connections are that they can do whatever and nothing comes back, then that's what is going to be hardwired. And so it's so important that you spend those first few years you know, developing a conversation with your child, you know, listen to what they have to say and, you know, it may be gobbledygook and you may not understand it. And you may have to say, I didn't quite get that. Were you trying to say? And then that gets them to hear those words and be able to give those words back, you know, so talk to your child, teach your child, you know, what things are, you know, Parents are the best teachers for their babies, and they need to assume that role. I mean, yes, it's hard. You have to work, and now you have another job. But, you know, that's the job that's going to give you the most gains in your life is developing your child so that your child becomes a healthy, productive adult. Again, the Chinese tradition would say in order to take care of the parents when they get old. And and being there through the hard times, the difficult times, staying with them when they're mad or, or feel jealous. That's an important emotion, too, mm-hmm. right? All the different emotions. Yeah, right. And and I do that with my children all the time when they fuss about something. Are you jealous of this? <laughs> you know, are you jealous of the fact that you can't do this and stuff? Yes, you should use that. So the American Academy of Pediatrics defines early relational health as a framework that explores the role of early relationships and experiences in healthy development across a child's lifetime. Relationships, especially in the early years, as you're saying, are biological necessities to build a foundation for lifelong growth and development. And they say they have three topics. Relationships should be safe. The relationship is free of physical or psychological harm. Children believe their caregivers will protect them. Stable, The adult is dependably there for the child. Children believe their caregivers will meet their needs. And nurturing, the child's physical, emotional, and developmental needs are sensitively and consistently met. Children believe their caregivers will use warmth and clear expectations to foster their development. Perfect. You know, and, and, you know, basically you are helping this little human lay the good groundwork for good brain development that helps them be able to learn new things and explore their world, uh, understanding the the parameters that you have set, the guidelines that you've set for a safe environment. And the children are watching us how we treat others as well. Mm, Oh, yes. So that's part of where they'll model our behavior, how we talk to the principal of the school or the person who's sweeping the floors. It's it's all important to see our kindness and compassion. Right. And if you sometimes mess up, you just tell them, I messed up, you know. And mm-hmm. I think that's, that is okay because that gives them permission to say, I messed up and I'm going to try to do better. Yes, that's great. I know one of our child abuse pediatricians, she said, she says to her daughter, you're not your mistakes. I'm not my mistakes. We are not our mistakes. And we learn from them. That's you know? right. Mistakes are what makes us stronger. That's great advice. Are there any sort of targeted interventions or anything you want to mention there that that the pediatric practitioner should be aware of? Or when when do you refer out, you know, this relationship needs help or anything you want to say there? 
you know, there's there. Unfortunately, you know, we don't have enough developmental pediatricians, and their focus is more on pathology kind of things. We would like this to be part of wellness, you know, like, and it's very hard. I know you don't have a lot of time. If you feel like you have a parent that's not emotionally connected to their child, you could set up another appointment. Of course, I don't know what the billing code would that be, but, you know, to, uh, one of the things I do is I tell the mom to sit down and I put the baby on her lap facing her. And I tell her it's very important for the baby to be facing you, be able to see you, and then uh, maybe listen to your heartbeat while you talk to your baby. And I tell them that they need to do it starting with at least a minute every day and then going up. And if mom is doing skin-to-skin care, that's a good time to do that. But to let their emotions go and just tell their baby everything. One of my uh, nurses says, you know, just let your baby be your counselor, your, you know, your <laughs> therapist. You just <laughs> tell them whatever you would need and, and just, you know, uh, develop your relationship that way. It is something that even if you don't have a good relationship, you could repair that because the baby craves the mother because that's all they've known. You know, they've been there in utero. They've heard all her voice, felt her emotions and so forth. And once the baby's born, you know, that's why babies fuss. They they want their moms. That's what I said when they take them to the NICU and the baby cries at me. I said, the baby wants the mom, mm-hmm. you know. So th- they have this craving for their mother. And as long as they can get that, they will be able to learn, which is what you want. So you can do it. I mean, just bring them in your office for maybe a 10, 15-minute visit where you have them sit down and and think about, you know, how to do this so that they can repair the relationship. I tell the parents, you know, start with, you know, five minutes and build up to 20 and and use that time. And once parents get used to it, they love it. You know, here's a therapist and the kids develop it and they like it. And if you can get that going early in that first few months, you're not going to have babies that will push their kids away and and stuff. I've had some great experiences just by t- teaching parents in the my clinic where I have them sit on the lap and then I, I model it. And of course, she's not going to want to talk in front of you, you know, but I tell her, you know, do tell your baby stories, tell your baby stories about, how, you know, times when you were upset, when you were mad, when you were angry, you know. The uh, the Reach Out and Read uh, program on early relational health says use the book and use the pictures in the book to tell your story. Basically, tell your story to your baby. You may have never told your story to anybody else in the world, but you can tell it to your baby, okay, because your baby would understand you. And and let that be. And you may like want to see her back in a few months just to see how that's going. If you feel like that she's not capable, you might want to see her sooner. But, you know, break it up and and and, and have her do this emphasizing the importance of this because, you know, if you can get that relationship going, you're not going to have that kid that's going to have temper tantrums and throw their head on the floor against the wall and the things that, you know, we don't like to see. You know, when kids do that and we ignore them, we're also feeding into it because no one wants to be lonely. 
-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, and you don't want to give the message that you don't care. So, you know, try to care. That's great advice. I, I know with my three children, one of them started to ignore the other one who was doing something they didn't like or saying something he didn't want. And I said, talk it out. It's better to deal with a conflict. It's much worse to ignore mm -hmm. your friend or your sibling or your family member. That's a, that's a terrible feeling. It's cruel. Well, not being able to confront our feelings is, I think, a lot of the problems we have right now. I think that's really an important point. And with Valentine's Day and love is on a lot of people's minds and interpersonal relationships, like what advice do you have there just in terms of strengthening our relationships in general with our older children, with our friends? <clears throat> with, what would you say? I say, you know, give each other time. And, you know, Dr. Welch, that calls it holding time, and and she does it, you know, with everybody, and and it taught me that I could do that with my ch adult children when I learned about it. I, you know, listen. I think that's the, you know, if for relationships, you know, ask questions about how the other's feeling. Listen, and and don't interrupt. You know, listen. For you, if you have a baby and it's Valentine's Day, that is the biggest gift of love that mm -hmm. you've been given. And I wish that could be the message. Babies are gifts of love. And they're here to help us. You know, they're, they're here to help us uh, kind of rethink life sometimes, you know, like understanding what's important. The human species would not have survived if that had not been the case where we recognize the importance of the newborn and developing them so that they can carry on. With you know, talking about teenagers, like, just give me five minutes and then go from there. And that's really helpful. I know with teenagers, it's their time, not your time. So <laughs> sometimes it's at three in the morning. Uh, that you <laughs> Late have, at night, yeah. Yeah, that you, you have to listen. And I know that was hard for me because I like to sleep. <laughs> but it, it, it is, uh, you know, if teenagers feel like they can talk to you and tell you what's bothering them, it's going to help them a lot. It's very difficult if they're only learning from each other. They really need adult guidance. Well, you mentioned holding time and connecting with your adult children. What So what do you say or do there? Can you tell us about that? I just, I give them big hugs and I said, and I just say, you know, how's, how's it going? Tell me what's going on. If they don't want to talk, I tell them some things about myself and, and I just listen. And and try not to interfere too much. How important as practitioners, as parents, is eye contact at eye level? Well, you know, if you're talking about the autonomic nervous system, the pinnacle of it is to be able to do eye contact and be able to approach whoever you're approaching with calm and not in that I'm going to, you know, I'm scared to death of you and I need to either fight you or run away or withdraw so that you don't know I exist. So if we can achieve that pinnacle of our autonomic 
nervous system, we should be able to see new people and look them in the eye and and talk to them. And as pediatricians, that's the relationship we have with our parents when they bring their children. And we have to develop that relationship so that we can trust each other. You can trust what mom's telling you about her child and she can trust what you have to say. So it's very important. When you see people who won't look you in the eye, Western society automatically gives distrust. Understanding that there are some cultures that don't can't do that. They they've been trained not to do that. So we have to be culturally sensitive to that. I can't tell you how to manage it because I don't do it very well. I tell my kids, like I, I'll just say sometimes, like I love it when you look me in the eyes, you know, and then it just kind of brings it to the awareness and we can talk, you know, that way. Well, babies communicate with their eyes. And that's what I tell parents. I say, you need to look at your baby in the eye and you have to engage them. And the earliest signs of autism is the baby that cannot engage, cannot look you in the eye. So, you know, that's something that I, when I see those babies and they're not doing it very early, I just tell mom, I said, you need to spend time every day looking your baby in the eye. And when they divert, I just put my face where they, you know, roll their eyes to. And then I keep trying to draw them in. And and that does take some work. You know, it takes a lot of smiling and cooing and talking and stuff to get their attention. But it's so worth it. You know, if you think about how hard a life is for a child with autism. If there's something you can do to prevent that, it's worth trying. So take your newborn baby and look them in the eye and keep looking them in the eye and keep engaging them while they're awake. And I know you're you're headed soon to take care of your grandkids and I like do is it your son and daughter-in-law? No, it's my daughter and son-in-law. Daughter daughter and son-in-law and your husband's a physician as well. Retired. Retired. But do they realize they have the dream team coming to take care of their children or is it kind of intimidating? Are they are they intimidated at all by your wealth of knowledge and or tell me about that. About I kind of doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I you know they, I, I hope, and I, I feel that's how they feel, is that they feel very comfortable with us because of our love for their children, and that our, you know, and our wish to protect them and uh, help them thrive. I, that's the message that I've gotten from my children, and they do call us when they need help frequently. And it's nice that my husband's retired because <laughs> even if I can't do it, he'll go, he will take care of it. So, and it's kind of the dream life for us, you know, to have to watch the future develop and, and play a little role into it. I don't think that we're better than any other set of grandparents who love their kids, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> our career sh- should not be what plays into it. <laughs> You're so humble, too. So uh, there was one pediatrician I was talking to the other day, and it really sticks with me. She was telling me how hard it is to be a pediatrician today with so much that they have to cover in the exam rooms and so much coming at them and these really high expectations from patients. They expect you to be the parent, to know everything, to be the doctor, to be the specialist. Like in terms of interrelational health, do you have any advice, you know, 40 years being a pediatrician 
It is very hard because we are taking care of more and more complicated patients. We can survive kids that we couldn't survive even five years ago. Uh, there are babies who's been months to year in the NICU, and we have so many more therapies than we used to have. So, and the babies are complicated. You know, if they've gone through as much as they have it so early in life. I mean, there's just so much to have to do. So, you know, it's hard. Yes, it's hard. But, you know, pediatricians are very resilient. They 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 rise to the occasion. And, you know, you don't have to know it all. I mean, there are specialists around. Of course, there's not enough pediatric subspecialists, and we need to support getting more of them, but because yeah. it's hard. I mean, it, why would you go into a subspecialty, make less money, and work harder? You know, it just is difficult, and, and I praise all those who are willing to do it. And it's, you know, pediatricians are amazing people. I agree. Because, you know, they don't pay us as much as we're worth. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they don't appreciate all we try to do for their kids. But they do a good job, you know. They take on a lot. And you, and they're always throwing things strong at us. You know, distrust of the medical world comes to us because they don't trust what we know and learn in, in all the things that we know about kids. You know, it's hard. I get it's hard. I think that organized pediatric medicine groups like the American Academy of Pediatrics, you know, we, we they understand that and they keep working on how to help solve some of these problems. So be a member, you know, Texas Pediatric Society. We try very hard to serve the pediatricians of Texas and you know, you know, come to the meetings, you know, we're trying to put on more webinars and things that make it easy for you to learn, uh, you know, while you are, you know, on your treadmill or something. But it is good to go to meetings and be network with friends and also bring up your concerns, because if you don't speak your concerns, we don't know what they are. And we understand that you have very limited to time on very complicated situations. And as a subspecialist, we try to make it easier. You know, like we do our follow-up with our patients and we try to give very detailed information to the pediatrician of what we have gathered so that you have that information and that support that you need to take care of these complicated kids. The quote by Nelson Mandela, history will judge us by the difference we make in the everyday lives of children. Mm -hmm. And I know you're doing that and our listeners are doing that. And it's just yes. Thank you so much for taking care of the kids. Dr. Alice Gong with the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio and University Hospital, president of the Texas Pediatric Society. Thank you so much for being here back on the show on Pediatrics Now. Anytime. Great job. We also have an episode about how to get a good night's sleep. Check back in the episodes on Pediatrics Now. I'm Holly Wayman. You're listening to Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy pediatric practitioner. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next week.